On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Maryland sports fans, there's only one sports book in the great state of Maryland with over 50 years experience booking bets and supporting customers. Betfred Sportsbook at Long Shots is now open and is the only sports book in Frederick offering cash betting on football, basketball, world soccer, and more. Visit the Betfred Sportsbook at I-270 and MD-85 in Frederick, right next to Longshot's off-track betting. Go to BetfredSports.com for more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise. Must be 21 or older. Play responsibly. For help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Welcome to the Inside Track, brought to you exclusively by Americana Rhythm Music Magazine. I am your host and publisher, Greg Tutmeyer. I am speaking today with Adam Gusso, an associate professor of English and Southern Studies at the University of Mississippi. Adam has just released a book, a novel actually, called Busker's Holiday. Welcome, Adam. Thanks. Thanks, Greg. So Glad just for um, clarification for anyone who's listening who might not know what the term busking means, um, just give me a quick um, layout of what that means to you and, and, and what, what we mean when we say busking. Yeah, well, I mean, basically, it's, uh, it's interchangeable with the idea of street performing. Mm-hmm. Um, and when uh, my bluesman partner, uh, Sterling McGee, and I went off to the International Busker Fest in Halifax in uh, the summer of 1990, we found ourselves, we were, we were at the called Satan and Adam at that point. Mm-hmm. We, uh, we found ourselves in the company of, um, you know, jugglers and mimes and people who uh, kind of stage street theater. Um, musicians are a part of that. Um, you know, one-man bands with the, the oom-pa-pa kinds of things on their back are part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were we were just, uh, you know, it was a one-man band and I was a harmonica player, yeah. and we kind of fit in. And okay. those fanciful names are often part of the busking world. Yeah. Um, I think when I think, I had not heard of the word busking uh, in the, in 1984, when I went off to Europe for the first time, hmm. and um, sort of, which is the grounds of uh, of my novel, um, I, I but I certainly had seen street performers in New York. Um, I'd seen uh, jazz combos and stuff mm-hmm. when I was working in a publishing company down by 59th Street and by the by the Plaza Hotel. So, sort of the idea of street performance back in the early 80s in New York, we had a guy named Ronaldo who was a beautiful Brazilian kind of sun god with long flowing hmm. locks and strumming big kind of classical guitar hmm. chords through amps and stuff. So they're all part of the busking world. Sure. And, and the key element of busking is really, I used to say there's three things that, that are important about it. You know, you got to get, it's, it's the cop, the location, the cops, and the weather. Mm-hmm. You've got to gotta be centrally located enough that there has to be enough street traffic to people going by that there's a chance that somebody will actually see you and throw money at you. Mm-hmm. The cops have to leave you alone, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to saying, you know, as they do in New York when you try to play at the corner of uh, Central Park uh, uh, West, mm-hmm. Columbus Circle, they'll sort of point up and they'll go, no, the people up there are going to complain the moment you start. No amps, okay. you know. Okay. And uh, and the weather, you know, if it rains, yeah, sure. what do busters do? Yeah. So, okay. Street performance. So the idea of busker we've got the, the the book is busker's holiday and it's it's a novel but it's based on your experience am i understanding that correctly yes 
and um, it's a novel that I was moved to try to begin to write, interestingly enough, 31 years ago when I, as a 26-year-old, first kind of, I, I was a graduate student at Columbia. Mm-hmm. I was a, a kind of, you uh, know, in a, in a long-term relationship that ended. And, uh, you know, you've got a couple of different choices when, when that happens. You mm-hmm. can qu- go go quietly crazy. You can see a therapist. Mm-hmm. If you don't have money for a therapist, I suppose you can go off to Europe and busk. And I right. sort of, that was <laughs> kind of, I took the latter plan. I think if I'd had inpatient counseling, none of this would have happened. But mm-hmm. but I went off with a, with a buddy um, in 84 and came back after five weeks, turned inside out. And I think, you know, the novel... I'll talk in a minute about sort of how it got written, but I, I came back and I was so powerfully changed and transformed. I can't quite, still can't quite make sense of it, mm. except to say that these many years later, I'm a professor who's sort of teaching blues literature and I'm playing a lot of music still. It changed the guy that I was mm-hmm. from a, a, a book guy to a book guy who acknowledged that he was a crazy, serious musician down underneath. And mm. I think Boston can do that. It can, it can pull those things out of you. Um, and I don't know, I was, I was getting started and then I just sort of lost the train of thought. Um, it was based, so it, I went to Europe and I came back and I said, I'm going to be like Jack Kerouac when it, on the Kerouac model. I sat down and I wrote 14, 40 pages a week for 14 weeks. Wow. Okay. And I came up with a crappy, big, sprawling first novel that was utterly unpublishable. And I, and it, it took me a, a year to figure that out. And then I went back and said I need to learn how to write. I was a good writer, but not a good fiction writer. Mm-hmm. And but after another three years, I and and several more trips to Europe, mm-hmm. including the summer of '86 when I went and uh, and worked it for a couple of months. Um, and then quite a bit of playing in New York. I mean, my experience as a busker was not just going over to Europe and doing it. It was working with several different guys mm-hmm. in New York on the streets, and then a long partnership with a guy named Sterling McGee, who I met on the streets of Harlem as Mr. Satan. Hmm. So for any of your listeners who might who might say, well, who is this Adam Gusso guy? If you've heard, if well, if you've ever seen Rattle and Hum, the U2 movie, sure. there's one brief scene where you've got a, basically a bearded older black guy mm-hmm. playing guitar and a couple of hi-hat cymbals, and there's a white guy in a white cowboy hat. That's me. Okay. <laughs> um, we cool. were... That was the summer of 87, and U2 came by, and they were looking for the roots in American music, you know. And, and they found us, mm, and we ended cool. up in Rattle and Hum in 1988. Mm. Um, and played five years, part-time on the street in New York, and then got picked up by... We were playing a lesbian bar in Greenwich Village, and I uh, got picked up by Bo Diddley's manager. She said, hey, I manage the village people, Bo Diddley and Wilson Pickett, and I love what <laughs> you guys are doing. That's cool. Um, thereby teaching any um, a lesson that any musician should learn, which is you never know what gig is going to be the right. gig. Yeah. You never know who's in the audience. Yeah. And yeah. suddenly we're on the bus with Bo. And so I had that whole experience. And during that whole period of time, late 80s, early 90s, mm-hmm. I was writing what ended up becoming the core of Busker's Holiday. Okay. Um, so yes, a lot of a lot of busking experience, and I still play on the streets. So why why a novel instead of a biographical story? All of that sounds very interesting in and of itself. Why mm-hmm. why the why the fiction aspect to it? Well, and that's a good question. And you know, the interesting thing is that I, I did in fact write a memoir about my whole Harlem experience and some of the background that made it into Buster's Holiday. Uh, and that was called Mr. Satan's Apprentice, a blues memoir, and that's that's still on the market, still okay. out there. Um, 
Buster's Holiday was the one that I was trying to write before that. Mm-hmm. And you say, why? I, I think, so I'm going to, I'm going to give a name. A novel's really, you know, it's, in, it's invented, but it's based in, in things that happened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would say that one of the core um, mo- motives uh, for writing the novel was to honor the very first guy that I played with on the street. He was a guitar player. I suspected a few of your, your audience may know him, but most probably won't. But he's easy to find. If you Google Bill Taft, the okay. president won't come up first. It's a, basically a, a, a kind of wild, surrealist, neo-folk guy hmm. who lives in Atlanta. We're still friends. And I sent him the book. He knows. I said, Bill, you know, I, I, I basically I wanted to create a character who you were for me back then. Mm-hmm. And so the character Billy Lee Grant, who's this 21-year-old kind of crazy Dylan-esque, like he's like Tom Waits, Bob Dylan, and early Muddy Waters all jammed in the hmm. body of okay. one college grad mm-hmm. um, who just is he's sort of American wild-heartedness personified plays guitar uh, left-handed and mm-hmm. just talks in ten different voices like WC fields and mm-hmm. everything else and that's mm-hmm. who this guy is and I that's a, in the core of my novel well none of I mean a lot of that's invention but it's so so I had to write a, a novel I had to do fiction in order to imagine what would happen if if this a, a, a young version of me McKay Chernoff Met Bill, uh, young Bill okay. um, in, in Europe, and they decided they were going to lay waste to the European summer busking scene. So that's the, that's <laughs> yeah. the premise of okay. the, the novel, okay. the middle yeah. part of the novel. Okay, that's cool. And how how did all of all of that experience bring you to be a professor of English and Southern Studies? Well. You know, I used to joke back, I was a, a grad student at Columbia in the early 80s after working in publishing a little bit. I was a, um, I was a grad student between 82 and 84, and then that change of life happened, and mm-hmm. I hung in for another year and then just left. I used to joke that like uh, like Raskolnikov and, and, and Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, I was a former grad student. I, I took great pride in the idea that I had just left. <laughs> um, and I don't know, you know, again, people listening to this, most of them probably aren't college professors, and some might think that's a sort of strange thing for a musician to do. Actually, you know, you, you get summers off and you have Christmas vacations, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. spring breaks. Sure. And if you want to be a musician, it's a pretty good day gig, and mm-hmm. I really hope my the chair of my department doesn't hear, hear this. Um, it's a really good it's a good gig to have, especially mm-hmm. if you're uh, if you're doing what I do, which is teaching English and Southern Studies, and specifically teaching blues literature. Okay. So that's that's what I was brought down to Ole Miss to do. I I bring blues musicians into my classroom. Um, uh, Mark Muleman Massey and uh, and uh, Bill Howland Mad Perry. Um, I don't, and I also teach a course in uh, in uh, a Southern Studies course. It's called Southern Musicians Autobiographies. Hmm. Okay. Um, and so we do, uh, you know, everybody from Loretta Lynn and, and Johnny Cash to uh, you know the high lonesome the high lonesome sound. We we definitely do some. Yeah some bluegrass stuff in class. Um, so that's, I think what happened was, I'm, like many people, I've got different sides. Mm-hmm, and uh, mm-hmm. there's the side that, that likes to sit and get lost in a story. And there's a side that likes to, you know, talk about what's happening when, ha- when that happens. And, and I really, I like the challenge of trying to, to talk about something like blues, um, it, you know, from all different perspectives. In sure, fact, I yeah. organized some conferences here early on. You know, not just as a practitioner where you're talking about the three-hole draw and how to bend and get that sort of slightly 
higher than flat third note mm-hmm. off the three hold. Mm-hmm. But but you know, but also, what does that mean? Why why where does that tonality come from? Yeah, and um, who uses it how? And, and uh, so when you start talking about something like blues, and the same is true of bluegrass, it gets you into American social history and African American history and, mm-hmm. and that whole Creole thing, which mm-hmm. makes American music so entrancing to people overseas. You know, what what. What would the typical student be studying that finds themselves in the classes that you teach? Well, I'm teaching my my course English 324 uh, in the spring. So when I say blues literature, I'm going to start off by just reading some definitions and some sort of epigrams when blues musicians talk about what the blues are. We'll read the three H's, uh, Langston Hughes, W.C. Handy, and Zora Neale Hurston. Mm Mm-hmm. So we've got in Hughes, you've got a great blues poet who took that 12-bar AAB form and found a way of cutting the lines in half and making little six-line blues poems. And we'll talk about what it means to take vernacular American music and and and, and translate it into literature. What do you leave out? You don't have the you don't have the harmonica player responding to the line, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. There's no there's no fills. Mm-hmm. Um, and I so as a musician, I mean, I bring the insights that a practicing musician might have sure, into yeah. the class. Um, W.C. Handy writes a book called Father of the Blues, and so we think about what does it mean to be a kind of middle-class son of a son and grandson of black ministers. What okay. does it mean to get it, to fall in love with the blues? It turns out it was as tricky for him as it was for would have been for a white peer. You yeah. know, popular music was not something that the black middle class liked. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they thought of it as sort of minstrelsy. And these students are pursuing what type of degree? What, what well, would... so the students that I get would be, a certain number would be English majors. Okay. Uh, there so might be some be a field of interest, students. okay. Yeah, so they're undergrads. Um, mm-hmm. And they're Mississippi kids. They're much more white than not. Mm-hmm. Um, they tend to be in, in, in these classes, mm-hmm. uh, although the University of Courts is now very integrated. Um, but, you know, it tends to be the white kids more who are interested in the, mm-hmm. in the blues. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And Southern Studies students, so there, but there might be some from any any different undergraduate degree. I've had business majors, science majors. So. Okay, yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah, you and I have spoken a couple times um, about a topic that seems to be touching uh, many forms of music, um, not just the blues, um, bluegrass as well, and and I think more vividly for probably a broader audience, even country music, and that's the idea of the traditional sound versus this modern sound that seems to be encroaching and in some areas uh, consuming um, what what people have perceived as being the authentic sound. And um, so we, we may be starting a topic that we can't finish this afternoon, but uh, you, you've mentioned that this, this is a, a topic that's kind of important to you and you've got some insight. Mm-hmm. So um, let's go down that path a little bit. Yeah. Well, this is a place where, you know, I, I tell your listeners that, in a sense, I'm, I'm kind of moving in a slightly parallel universe. I'm, mm-hmm. You know, I'm a I'm a, a blues guy with sort of jazz and funk leanings. Um, the busking thing takes me into a folk direction, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, but I rarely find myself in bluegrass context. I'd be sort of frightened. Uh, my friend Trip Henderson <laughs> would. I mean, I, I know harmonica players sure, sure, yeah. who play bluegrass. Yeah. Um, but you know, in the in the in the contemporary blues world, um, you have a very interesting phenomenon, uh, which is to say that, and this, this has been especially true uh, among, because there's a kind of racial component to this among among white blues players, 
Mm-hmm. They're sort of it goes in two different directions. One is the kind of intense, what I'd call a traditionalist approach that makes a fetish of a certain kind of sound, and it's either, you know, the the country sound of blues circa 1920, 1930 with Robert Johnson and mm-hmm. and uh, you know Sun House being kind of fetish objects. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that let's say somebody who was hardcore just wants to do you know the bluegrass boys Bill Monroe mm-hmm. repertoire might might fall into that category. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, so white guys singing with pseudo black accents that um, mm-hmm. they also might get into kind of a 50s retro bag and want to all be just like little Walter. Mm-hmm. Um, the other stream, of course, would be a kind of futurism um, and would be sort of the, the, the heavy rock end. Mm-hmm. And, and that's also a, a, a thing that's out there. It's very hard, I think, for blues to figure out, to kind of navigate the, 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 the tensions between tradition and what I call modernity, between mm-hmm. the old sound and whatever a new sound might be. Mm-hmm. The, the great irony is that a guy like Little Walter, who any number of modern blues harmonica players want to sound just like, a guy like Little Walter was incredibly invested in trying to sound not like everybody else. Well, he wanted to sound like the sax players, the hip contemporary R&B sax players. Mm-hmm. If I tried to sound like Dave Sanborn, which is a guy I've listened to. Mm-hmm. Um, I listen to a lot of tax players as a harp player. But it would be like, I mean, Dave Sanborn at this point is, I mean, he's not cutting edge um, right. the way he was in the in the mid-80s. Right. Um, but so there's this tension. And, and and my own perspective on the, on this, I often come off as a kind of modernist. I often come off as somebody who likes to get down on the traditionalists mm-hmm. because I think that what they're doing is sort of reifying a particular catalog, a particular sound but not really honoring the spirit that was there in the people who created all this wonderful music, mm-hmm. like like a Robert Johnson, who mm-hmm. was, again, in his own way, kind of cutting edge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. He was not, you know, he's not the old sound in 1936, exactly. He's really trying to, some of his uh, 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 hot tamales and red hots, yeah, we got them for sale. He's mm-hmm. doing contemporary kind of street, street art. Mm-hmm. Um my own attitude was formed by the fact that I played with a, a, an elder African-American musician who was an incredible innovator. He was from Mississippi, played with King Curtis, was in Germany as a paratrooper during the, in the, during the 50s. He was incredibly hip and incredibly devoted. He said, I don't sound like anybody else. He said, the hardest thing in the world is to get a sound that nobody else had. Mm-hmm. So he was a radical innovator, but by the same token, coming from Mississippi as he did, had a deep soulful southern sound and that makes me and he pulled me along with him he dragged me along and that means my own approach tends to be half a foot in tradition and you know one foot in tradition and Mm -hmm. one foot in Mm -hmm. trying to do stuff that will sound in 50 years like it was the sound of uh, 2015 if that makes any sense sure i don't know where that where that lays me relative to the contemporary bluegrass world maybe you can I like to hear a little bit from your perspective, if, if it's not too dangerous for you. No, no, not at all. I mean, I think it's um, it that that um, that divide has been happening in very visually in the national country music scene for quite a while. You've mm-hmm. you've got a lot of people who uh, are traditional country country um, music lovers who who like the Waylon Jennings and um, Merle Haggard and 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 um, Kitty, Kitty Wells and Dottie West and that, that that type of sound, and then you've got the new country music of today that that to me sounds a lot like the 
um, kind of the uh, 70s um, FM, 70s classic rock music. It's got very, very much yeah. that kind of sound. Um, what what seems to be kind of um, happening in, in the bluegrass industry is you have a lot of folks that are kind of um, – really leaning in towards the uh, preservation of the traditional sound, uh, you know, the Bill Monroe type of um, approach to bluegrass music. And then you've got the um, the Sam Bush era type folks who uh, they call that new grass and mm-hmm. then on up into the experimental, which really rolls over into the Americana, which they don't mind adding a little bit of percussion. And, and, and you may even see a little harp showing up from time to time. Um, it's still bluegrass instruments. The Bella Fleck and the Fleck tones, I Sure, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, so it's leaving. the yeah. same kind of struggle with you've got the, the musicians uh, really wanting to hold on to the traditional sound, and then you've got the newer, predominantly newer, younger musicians who are very much um, appreciate the influence of the traditional sound but are trying to establish their own sound that kind of like you said in 50 years when you look back, um, you know, when you look back to the 30s, you will – you will see that Bill Monroe is being identified mm-hmm. as a bluegrass sound. When you look back to the 2015s, you may look more like into the Steep Canyon Rangers or the, the Flectones or somebody like that is kind of being the ones that have established the, the benchmark for that era. So um, it's it's the same kind of thing. But I, I think probably you, you would have people in the jazz industry say the same thing. You've got the... You know the school, the yeah. the, uh, the the classic jazz artists that uh, Coltrane and those those folks, and uh, and then you've got the new more fusion jazz that again you kind of got that divide. Like yeah, you know, how do we hang point. on to the old and still and still create authentic new music? Good point. I wonder what the Americana rhythm uh, audience would make of. Um, I, I'm trying to remember his name, but it was Chris Stapleton and what's his name? The guy. Oh, sure. Yeah, the guy who just won three awards at the uh, at the CMAs. But, but what was the? I, I'm not a huge CMA guy, but I was watching. And, and why am I forgetting his name? Who's the the, the Chris young Stapleton? White soul guy? Uh, well, J, um, uh, Justin Timberlake. Justin Timberlake. Yeah, yeah. Some of the is... best music I've heard on t- live TV sure. in, in the last twenty years. Yeah. I was blown away now yeah. you know so you wonder where i'm coming from it would be that's something i've never heard before right it and it was deep. very it was very uh very good and rooted in in kind of the classic country sound but uh, chris stapleton is a phenomenal songwriter and phenomenal. and he he is is a kentucky uh bluegrass roots artist and spent a couple years with a group called the steel drivers and they were nominated a couple times for uh, grammy awards so he he's he's established himself actually in in the bluegrass industry and so a lot of the country music folks like who who is this guy we've never heard of him before but he's written eight or ten top top number one songs even uh, quite a few of them for other country artists so it was really well cool i, ha- to I see loved the, the the two songs that those two guys did together yeah, I, right. I literally stood up with the hair rising on yeah. my head going I, what is this it was yeah. like it was like deep southern soul yeah, yeah. with all that stuff mixed together so sure. to, me, to me that's you know when you can do that so you want to know what somebody kind of outside the, the 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 central orbit of americana yeah rhythm you know is looking for in terms of crossover it would be that kind of unexpected yeah. blend but it has to have something deep in it i sure. think he clearly did yeah. yeah no that yeah that was that was awesome yeah every, everybody everybody that i know has has kind of had the same feeling like man that was just that, that's where it needs to go and so yeah you know it'll be, it'll be neat to, to see what kind of run he has yeah. with that exposure 
Well, you know, I was a, I, I've always been a fan of Alison Krauss from mm-hmm. from the old days. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there, and I and I listened to Channel 61, uh, Sirius XM, oh, yeah. the Bluegrass Channel, which yeah. is how I was aware that there was a big tension with you know between modernists and traditionalists sure. within bluegrass. Uh, it was one of my favorite stations. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So the 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 book is Busker's Holiday. How can people find that? Um, where's the best place for them yeah, to, to sure. get a copy? So, you know, well, the easiest thing to do, I suppose, is go to Google and put in Busker's Holiday. And if you do that, the first page that comes up is the, is a page on my website, Modern Blues Harmonica, um, which will in which you'll, you can either buy from Amazon or you can buy direct from me. Okay. The truth is, I didn't think I really wanted to be a, a book fulfillment. You know, agency. Yeah. <laughs> but Amazon has 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 at this point is not. They've got the e-books if you're an e-book person, okay. but they don't yet have the actual books. So I'm sort of filling the gap. Okay. So and, it depends what you want. You can go to directly to Amazon, but you can also come right to me. Um, and and how can they um, reach out to you directly if they if they're curious to uh, tap into some more of these kinds of conversations or, or find out more about sure. you personally? Um. Well, can, I, am I allowed to give an, an email address? On yeah, absolutely, sure. Sure. Uh, it's easy to find me. Uh, it's asgusso, A-S-G-U-S-S-O-W at AOL.com. Um, easy to find. And uh, I'm also at the University of Mississippi. It's easy to, to find me there on the, the webpage. Um, I've got a website called Modern Blues Harmonica, which sort of has a very active forum for people who are interested in, in, in harmonica stuff. Great. Um, and lots of stuff on YouTube. Anybody who uh, is looking to maybe take a first step and learn how to play blues harmonica. You can uh, just Google Gusso harmonica on YouTube and you'll find more than you want to find. Great. A lot there. Great. Thanks, Adam. This is this has been neat. I think we've we've probably opened up some conversations we may have to pursue <laughs> again sometime. <laughs> so this this has been cool. Thanks for sharing with us. Well I really appreciate the, the time and space, Greg. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Inside Track. We sure do appreciate you sticking around. Join us again real soon when we get together with another great artist and talking about their music. Have a great day. Maryland sports fans, there's only one sports book in the great state of Maryland with over 50 years' experience booking bets and supporting customers. Betfred Sportsbook at Long Shots is now open and is the only sports book in Frederick offering cash betting on football, basketball, world soccer, and more. Visit the Betfred Sportsbook at I-270 and MD-85 in Frederick, right next to Long Shots Off-Track Betting. Go to BetfredSports.com for more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise. Must be 21 or older. Play responsibly. For help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who kill their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions, and plenty more. 
from assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.